All right, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. alaikum, everybody. I'm like so happy that we're together again. I've missed all of you. <laughs> it really feels like something's been missing, right? I mean, just, and I think we were really sad, or I was sad when I was writing the, the weekly email on Thursday night, like, man, we're just two people away from, you know, an Illumin Halakha. And then when I wrote that, I actually didn't really think anything, but literally within maybe, I don't know, five minutes of sending it out, a beautiful soul wrote back and said, oh, I got this, and then sent in like enough for two people. And then I got several other people who did that too. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening? So they're already seating for the next Illumin Halakha. So God bless all of you who really stepped up and made this happen. And I was just like, you know, I think the, the sheikh had gone to bed that night thinking, okay, well, we'll just do a Q&A. So when he woke up, I was like, oh, we can do the Illumin Halakha. <laughs> I think he thought he was dreaming. So anyway, but we were really happy. I mean, alhamdulillah, I'm just, I'm so excited that we could do this again. And um, thank you. May God bless you. I mean, I think that the people who stepped up really, really earned extra hasanat. So that's for this um, for this halakha and all, all the future work, inshallah. So thank you so, so much. Um, so, um, you know, I think we're maybe like 20 people or so till the next Illumin Halakha. And that's, um, you know, so let's do it. Um, I think our next one is um, set for November 7th. So we're about a month away. Um, and I, you know, since we've now taken almost, you know, 35, 40 minutes to deal with the devil attack, I just want to get, get started. So um, inshallah, it'll be a very, very special session. And um, thank you so much for joining. Bismillah alaikum, everyone. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Muhammad wa ali wa ya Rabbil Alameen. اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقهوا قولي يا رب. Okay, so um, let's start out with just uh, um, telling you um, something about how we uh, the surah, inshallah, today. Uh, well, initially, of course, Grace told me that it's going to be a Q&A, and then uh, the night before, she said, no, it's going to be halqa. And that, of course, then raises the question of which surah. And um, I prayed... And it was very clear that it should either be Surat Uttur or Surat Al-Ankabut. And I, I didn't think that I got, um, I didn't think that I got an answer as to which of these two surahs it would be. Um, but... To be honest, um, I know what Surah Al-Ankabut involves, and I know what Surah Al-Tur involves. And uh, suffering from exhaustion and migraine headaches and ringing in the ear, um, I think 
I subconsciously gravitated towards the shorter surah, surah tutur. So I spent uh, all last night uh, prepping surah tutur and um, closed the matter by, you know, after Fajr, prayed Fajr, and went to sleep. But then, while asleep, I got a very clear message that my choice was wrong and that it should have been Surat Al-Ankabut. So I woke up after a couple of hours of sleep and a panic, uh, knowing that, you see, even I can succumb to pressure and uh, cut corners, uh, knowing that I've um, woke up, you know, knowing that it, it was got a very clear message that it should be Surat al Ankabut, and that knowing that I've chosen Surat al Tur because it is shorter and involves less effort. So, of course, then this. Uh, this morning, I put together the material I needed for Surat Al-Ankabut. And inshallah, we'll do Surat Al-Ankabut. But because of this, both of these surahs, like all surahs in the Quran, both Surat Al-Tur and Surat Al-Ankabut play a critical role in building up the mentality, the spirituality, and the intellectuality of a Muslim, uh, as as you now know from my methodology, is that every, we we look at the Quran as it, it it interacted with the people to whom it was revealed, and the way that it transformed them as human beings. And as you know from our methodology, that in the same way that the Quran transformed the people to which it was revealed, but also warned them about so many threats and weaknesses and pitfalls, it is equally pertinent and applicable to us so I underscore again that this is not an intellectual journey. It's not a matter of satisfying curiosity. Um, it is not even a matter of studying your tradition. You must personalize the Quran. It must be God's speech to you individually. If you don't deal with the Quran as a personal revelation, then this entire endeavor, this entire process is for naught. Then it's nothing. You must deal with the Quran as a personal revelation in the same way that it, it addressed 
all the people surrounding the Prophet Muhammad individually, individually, it addresses every human being that engages this revelation individually and personally. And Surah At-Tur has a very powerful, very powerful personal message. Um, it's so powerful that the, we have many reports that the Prophet ﷺ would recite Surah At-Tur in its entirety at Fajr prayer. And that he did this quite often. And there are even sometimes when a Jummah, uh, during his khutbah, Jummah, he would recite Surah At-Tur in its entirety. But as important as Surah At-Tur is, as I said, it was clear. The message that I got was very clear that I'm supposed to um, cover Surah Al-Ankabut, the spider. So we will delve, inshallah, into Surah Al-Ankabut. Um, inshallah, next halaqa will do Surah Al-Tur. I think that was the message. Um, that was the clear message. The next halaqa, inshallah, Surah Al-Tur. But for those people who are who listen to this, and even those people who, even, you know, other than personally supporting the effort, um, meaning that other than you personally donating, take it upon yourself to try to convince others to support this effort because I want to present Surah Al-Tur as soon as I can. And, you know, I'm following the rules given to me uh, so uh, Grace says that we need about 20 donors to do Surah Al-Tur. Um, the deadline for applications has now passed, and we've received more applications than we can possibly accommodate. And uh, I haven't started reading the applications yet. Inshallah, I will. Um, and as usual, I will read the application and then pray on them. Um, the The money looks like the it looks like all the money is going to go to supporting students, um, or most of the money, or whatever. But the our ability to support students is limited. So what I'm saying is the the more support we get, the more students we are able to accept and um, and support. Because of course this is expensive. It involves paying for the students' residence and paying for their um, um, their meals and you know what whatever else you know, the, the cost of living for students. Um, it, yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it, initially we, we thought that 
the 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 funds could be both to to allow me to take a leave from the university so in other words pay for my salary and then also support uh, pay for the the scholarships for students but it doesn't look like that's um that is realistic and it, it looks like basically the money would be for students alhamdulillah but my what i'm underscoring is that any da'wah, any da'wah, any message in the world that is supported intellectually um, goes nowhere. Uh, it, the proof of human commitment is their willingness to give up two things, their time and their resources. The two most valuable things that human beings tend to cherish. Uh, people are very selfish with their time. You know, they they might spend time laughing, joking, eating, but when they have to donate time to the service of others, that's when they start counting the minutes. And people are very selfish with their money. Uh, talk is cheap. There's a surah, surah to shara Inshallah, one of these days we'll cover it. That tells us this message precisely, that talk is cheap. You can pontificate cheaply and easily. It, people love to pontificate. But when it comes time to actually proving your commitment, it's time and money. That's why Islamic causes suffer in the world. Um, that's why the Armenian lobby in Los Angeles is as powerful as it is, and the Kurdish lobby in the United States is as powerful as it is, and the Baha'i lobby in the United States is powerful, and the Ismaili lobby in the West is powerful. All of these lobbies invest time and money. Um, sadly, the Muslim, Sunni, and Shia, both, um, they're all talk. You know, you can find a lot of discourse on the net, a lot of people pontificating, a lot of people chatting, talking, blabbing, yapping. But where it matters, there's nothing. Empower, empower us. The more I, I watch this world, the more every day that passes, I, I, I know what that day means. Um, because our time on this earth is numbered, whether you realize it or not, it's very temporal and it's very temporary and it passes very quickly. Every day that passes, I worry a little bit more about the ability to unload what I've learned about the Quran from 
a lifetime journey. And if I would find this material presented somewhere else, anywhere else, just anywhere else, I would um, rest better. I would feel better. But um, someone said, Sharif, can you grab, there's a red book over there. You know, uh, there's a red book there. Can you grab it? Yeah, that one. That one. You know, uh, because people love to, 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 as I said, talk is cheap. So someone said, well, you know, isn't basically your approach identical to the Amin Ahsan Islahi approach to the Quran? Well, someone who says that, that means they haven't read the work of um, Islahi. Islahi has the idea that there is systematic coherence from one chapter to another in the Quran. But there's a couple things about the Islahi work. One, his tafsir was written in Urdu. So unless you read Urdu, you really don't have access to it. Parts of his approach has been translated to English. Uh, basically, there are two volumes um, in English. But his message um, is ex very different than what I present substantively. Um, so it's, it's just remarkable. I mean, I just wish Muslims would um, take responsibility for what they say. Um, it's not important to look good. It's important that in Allah's eyes, you are a true speaker. That when Allah hears you, Allah knows that you are speaking substantively and seriously, not flexing muscles to seem impressive. Um, that's the liability in the hereafter. When, when you stand before Allah, every moment you spend flexing and showing off and Instagramming and taking pictures of yourself and things like that, uh, these are all things you're going to worry about in the hereafter. Um, because they're all acts of egoism. And the ego is a heavy responsibility in the hereafter. And if anyone actually bought your um, your propaganda, self-propaganda, and felt jealous, you're going to have to answer for that jealousy that you've raised in other people. So take Allah seriously. Take your accountability seriously. Anyway. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Surah Al-Ankabut, the spider, lays a heavy responsibility upon all of us. It delivers a stunning, earth-shattering message. Um, that 
did not just have a transformative impact in spiritual terms, as you will see, inshallah, it had a transformative impact in very material terms as well. Because what it demanded, what it required, was nothing short of complete and total upheaval in the lives of the followers of Muhammad And as we'll see, not everyone rose to the channel, the challenge. There were failures. Even among those people who met the Prophet and were companions, uh, some rose to a challenge and some didn't. But that's the message that Surah Al-Ankabut delivers. So first Surah Al-Ankabut is revealed towards the end of the Meccan period. Um, the there are various reports whether it was revealed right after a Qasas, another very important revolutionary surah. Um, whether it was revealed right after a Qasas or whether it was revealed right after Surah Al-Rum, uh, Surah was a very critical intellectual message. Um, but it is revealed towards the end of the Meccan period. And at that time, the persecution of Muslims is at a high there are Muslims who are persecuted physically because they don't have the tribal clout to be protected. There are Muslims who do have the tribal clout, but they are persecuted within their own families, as we will see. Their families are tormenting them, um, their own mothers and fathers and uncles and so on are actually torturing them or imprisoning them and so on. And there are Muslims who are so disempowered that they're keeping their conversion secret. And then there are Muslims who are like Abu Bakr and Omar and, and so on who are out out in the open about their conversion and in sort of in a constant state of confrontation. Even someone like Abu Bakr, who did have tribal clout, uh, was beaten very severely during this period. Uh, his face was completely bloodied, and the beating was so severe that he passed out and was transported uh, to the home of one of the companions. Um, so it's a challenging period 
and the of course by by that point, uh, Khadija, the Prophet's wife, has passed away, and there is a it a it period of real trials and tribulations. So Muslims, to put it simply, are going through a very difficult time and some of them will even cave under the pressure. Some of them, as we will talk about in a second, inshallah, uh, even um, go back on their conversion. They can't hack it. Um, and this is the point at which Surah Al-Ankabut is revealed right shortly before there is the Hijrah. So we've already encountered the surahs that start out with Alif Lam Mim and refer back to everything about I said about Alif Lam Mim and the surahs that start with Alif Lam Mim. Uh, you know the the if you walk this path and your relationship with Allah is constant and persistent and strong, you might see meanings to these letters that are beyond your imagination. These letters can visualize and come together before your eyes. So it starts with Alif Lam Mim and then delivers a punch to these Muslims who are collectively recognizing or aware of the difficulties they are going through, starts out with a very powerful opening salvo. Ahasiban nasu ayutraku ayakulu amanna wahum la yuftanun. Do people think, do people think that they can claim to be believers, that they will be left to say that they are believers without being tested? This is not how dunya works. This is not how life on earth works. Being tested is part of the very nature of creation on earth. So it is as if the Quran is addressing these Muslims directly and say, yeah, I, I know you're suffering, but do you think that you could have been left to say that you are true believers without Allah allowing you to suffer? وَلِقَدْ فَتَنَّ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ فَلِيَعْلَمَنَّ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ صَدَقُوا وَلِيَعْلَمَنَّ الْكَاذِبِينَ 
you are being tested as those before you were tested. And it is the trials and tribulations, the difficulties that you are enduring that will differentiate between the truthful ones and the liars. Liars, to even to yourself, because it is easy to say, I am this or I am that, but it is when you confront difficulties that's the point that we differentiate between the sincere ones and the show-offs, the, the make-beliefs, the insecure ones, the um, so on. أَمْ حَسِبَ الَّذِينَ يَعْمَلُونَ السَّيِّئَاتِ أَنْ يَصْبِقُونَ سَاءَ مَا يَحْكُمُونَ من كان يرجو لقاء الله فإن الله أجل الله لآت وهو السميع العليم ومن جاهد فإنما يجاهد لنفسه إن الله لغني عن العالمين والذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات لنكفرن عنهم سيئاتهم ولنجزينهم أحسن الذي كانوا يعملون so the opening salvo is an earthquake. Do you think that you could have been left to say that you believe without hardship? And it is in fact that hardship that differentiates between the truthful ones and the untruthful ones. Now, in this, there is also a message to those who inflict suffering, inflict suffering upon the believers. And the message is, God is aware that the expression is, is, is wonderful, that God is aware that, of what you are doing. And do you think that what you are doing is somehow out of our control? That's not how it works. In fact, you have extremely poor judgment because all of it is something that Allah is keenly aware of and as the surah will go on to say, everyone will be held meticulously accountable for their performance on this earth. And there are basically two types of people. There are people who are aware that everything ends with God, liqa Allah. That that moment 
when you will stand in a very different reality, in a very different universe, in our language, in a very different dimension, confronted by the undeniable truth of a divine being that is the cause and the end and the everything. There are two types of people. There are people who are aware of this and everything they do reflects that awareness. I will die and upon my death that moment will come. And so I am always cognizant of this. And there are people who live in oblivion trying to escape that inevitability through a variety of ways. As we will see, these people try to escape by distracting themselves with fun, with laughter, with mockery, try to distract themselves with power, with money, with whatever the distraction is. But ultimately, they are trying to distract themselves from that inevitable truth because they really wish it is not true. In their heart, they really wish that there, that 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 momentous or that that uh, um, overwhelming moment wouldn't come. It's very decisive and and it's a promise. No. That moment will come. In the same way that you were born in this world, suddenly confronted by the reality that you are in this world. And you open your eyes and you know you see someone that you call mother and you see someone that you call father. Well, that became your reality, undeniable. You have no you had no choice. It became your reality. Well, guess what? There will be another moment. And there will be another reality that's also undeniable. Inna ajalallahi la'at. It will come. And in the same way that you thought when you were living on earth that this is everything, in the hereafter you will come to the realization that that is everything. And the consequences of that. Okay. Very important ayah. Remember it always. Man kana yarju liqa Allahi fa inna ajal Allahi laat. And always ask yourself: Are you trying to weasel out of the inevitability that you're going to confront your Lord, or are you living up to the to? what everything in your being is telling you, that that moment is coming. You're not going to be able to escape it. Do whatever you want, you're not going to be able to escape it. Where is Binti? 
Where's Binti? Call her. What is this? I just realized Binti is missing. We are talking about very important things. Inna ajalallahi la'at. And there's no binti? Inna ajalallahi la'at. Sorry. You need to rectify the situation. Everyone is waiting. Get on. <laughs> kids. You know, what do you do? You have kids, you always have to keep chasing after them with a stick, you know, making them behave. Okay. Now, notice and Maya, you need to hear this, so come. I'm chasing after children, I'm chasing after my wife. <laughs> okay. Then notice in Ayah 6, وَمَنْ جَاهَدَ فَإِنَّمَا يُجَاهِدُ لِنَفْسِهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَغَنِيٌّ عَنِ الْعَالَمِينَ Now here, in Al-Ankabut, notice that this is a Meccan surah. And we are told This is a jihad. Now, why is this really important? Because the permission to use jihad in qital form, qital meaning actual fighting, was not given yet. We, we, we don't have the ayah yet. أُذِنَا لِلَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا Sorry. أُذِنَا لِلَّذِينَ Anyway, the ayatul the, the, the ayah that gives permission to use military force is not there yet. But yet, in Al-Kabut, we are talking about jihad. So, again, why is that important? Because this is concrete textual reality or evidence that jihad is a much broader and much more critical concept than military combat. So, and I, I, I'll talk about the occasion for revelation in a second, but. So, know that this is a jihad, struggling to endure the trials and tribulations and the suffering and the persecution that you are going through is a jihad 
and know that this jihad is a personalized jihad. So no one can ride on the coattails of another. No one could say, well, you know, some my you know the prophet is achieving victory, so I just will slip by. Your jihad is in fact how you are processing the trials and tribulations that inflict that that come upon you as a human being and as a person and as an individual. Now here, there is a discussion, some scholars said, well, Al-Ankabut, everyone knows it's a Meccan surah, but some scholars said, well, the first ayat of Al-Ankabut were revealed in Medina, not Mecca. Uh, that's very problematic. But even if that was true, even if the first few ayat of Al-Ankabut were revealed, revealed in Medina, the question, the methodological question that I always deal with is why would these ayat be placed in, these, in this surah? So... Those who try to say, well, look, you know, that, well, you know, it, it was maybe revealed in Medina. The significance of it being revealed in Medina is that now in Medina you have permission to fight. But in Mecca you don't have permission to fight. But that's, that's immaterial because the issue is that when it came to the point of organizing the Quran, even assuming that these were revealed in Medina, which I don't think they were. The evidence for that is rather weak. But even if the, the conscious decision was made by the Prophet and by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that these ayat be placed in the chapter of Al-Ankabut, which is a Meccan surah, which predates the permission to fight. So... This actually become even more important in our age because I see so many Muslims because of Islamophobia and because of other, you know they they try to escape from the theology of jihad, and you don't know what you're doing. Um, you can't escape the theology of jihad. Jihad is core to everything in our faith. It was said that. There were there are various reports. I'll just quickly go over, just so to, to sake of being complete. There are some said that this um, these ayat were revealed because Ammar ibn Yasser uh, to address the plight of Ammar ibn Yasser who was being tortured by a man called um, Ibn Jarih. Um, another report said that um, the, 
that there were a group. I'm trying to to remember how the story goes. That there were a group of Muslims in Mecca uh, who were being persecuted, and then they tried to flee Mecca. The Qurayshis went after them, dragged them back to Mecca, and continued to torture them. And that some of them left Islam as a result of that. There is yet another report that says that these verses were revealed on the occasion of the martyrhood of a man called Mihja. Uh, Mihja um, was Mawla of Mawali Umar, meaning that he was uh, under the protection of Umar or former slave or a current slave, we're not sure, but that um, he was the first person to be killed in the battle of Badr and that these surah were revealed on the occasion. Others said no, that this, these, so the, the, this, these verses were revealed because Hisham bin Rabi'a al-Makhzumi uh, was a Muslim and then when he was persecuted and tortured, he apostated and left the faith. And then that these ayat were revealed. As you can tell, just by the fact that there are so many narrations that say that these ayat were revealed because of this and these ayat were revealed because of this, none of them are very strong. And I don't think that these ayat were revealed, these ayat were revealed to address a reality, not in Makhzumi, not Ammar ibn Yasser, not, not any of these specific events, but to reveal a collective reality as Muslims were in Mecca before Muslims go to the Medina, as we will see. Okay. Now, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ لَنُكَفِّرَنَّ عَنْهُمْ سَيِّئَاتِهِمْ وَلَنْجِزِيَنَّهُمْ أَحْسَنَ الَّذِي كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ It's a... Let's look at the translation. This is ayah number seven. Those who believe and perform righteous deeds, we shall surely absolve them of their evil deeds, and they surely recompense them according to the best of what they used to do. The, the English loses the, um, the, the, beauty, the beauty of the language. It's a very tender promise by Allah. It's a, it's a promise full of tenderness and gent gentleness. It's like Allah saying, you know, okay, I know this is a jihad, and this is a personal jihad. But rest assured that for those of you who persevere, I will treat you with generosity and beauty. If I was making a translation of it, I would translate it as a promise by Allah. What you can expect from me is generosity and beauty.
Okay. So, addressing the fitna, addressing the jihad, and then it moves to a very fascinating theme. theme. بما في الصدور بما في صدور العالمين وليعلمن الله الذين امنوا وليعلمن المنافقين okay so it moves from that to then saying we commanded that you deal with your parents with beauty and righteousness husna However, if they try to force you towards kuf, don't obey them. And always remember that this is not about your life on earth. This is about how you will come back to me. Remember that you were born, you found the reality that you think is all, is all there is. But you will be born again. And there will be another reality that will be all that there is. And so Allah re reminds us. Now, in the reports, you find reports that say, well, you know, the, the reason it talks about parents and the dynamic of trying to force you to be a kafir and don't obey them is that there was a man, Sa'd ibn, ibn Abi Waqqas, um, well, actually, let, let me back to There are a couple of reports. There, there's a report that Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, his mother, the, his, his family tried to force him to leave Islam. And they, they, they imprisoned him, they beat him, they tried to starve him. And when all, uh, when all failed, his mother said, swore that she will not eat or drink until he leaves Islam. And that in fact, that not only did she stop eating and drinking, but she went and sat in the sun. And this is the desert, right? Saying like, I'm going to sit until I get a sunstroke and die unless you leave this faith. And Sa'd ibn Abi al-Waqqas told her mother, no, that if, if, even if I see your, your soul leave your body, I cannot leave this faith. So that's one narrative. Um, there's another narrative very similar that Al-Ayyash al ibn Abi Rabi'a al-Makhzumi, his mother, also swore that she will not eat or drink and will not bathe 
and will not do anything unless he leaves Islam, um, and that, in fact, he he escapes from his home. He he travel. He tries to get out of Medina. They bring him back, um, and continue torturing him. But there, here was this story. I mean, I might as well tell you about it. Uh, with the Ayash story, the narrative goes is that he joins Muslims in Medina and while after having settled in Medina, his relatives come to him in Medina and say, your mother is starving herself to death come back with us, talk to her, because the woman the woman is going to perish. So Ayesh says, asks the, the, his fellow Muslims in Medina, and they say, you know, we are afraid that once you're back there, they will imprison you and torture you. So Ayesh made his relatives promise him that, when he goes back with them to Mecca to talk to his mother, that they will not imprison him or beat him. And they betrayed, they, they, they tricked him. So the minute he, they went out of Medina, they jumped on him, um, tied him up, took him back to Mecca, and tortured him um, continuously. Eventually, he manages to escape from them, I mean, the, and but the the story of Ayash and and his plight is is very dramatic when when you read the details of it. There is yet another story that there were some Muslims who did not migrate to Mecca, to Medina and remain back in Mecca, and when hostilities broke out between Muslims and Quraysh in the Battle of Badr. The Qurayshis went to these Muslims who had not migrated to Medina and forced them to fight in, on their side against Muslims in the Battle of Badr. And that some of these Muslims were killed, although they were Muslim, they were killed fighting on the side of the kuffar against fellow Muslims in the Battle of Badr, and that these verses were revealed to address this situation. Again, all of that you can't count on. I mean, I believe that the story of Ayash took place. I believe that the story of Saad bin Abi Waqqas took place with his mother. Uh, I believe that, the, that there were Muslims who were forced, who failed to migrate to Medina and were forced to be in the ranks of the Qurayshi army to fight against fellow Muslims in the Battle of Badr. I believe all of that. But I don't believe that that was the reason for these ayat, for the revelation of these ayat. These ayat are clearly relevant to all of that, pertinent to all of that. But there is this tendency in the tradition for the muhaddisun especially to try to 
you know, say, well, these ayat seem to address this situation, so it must be an okay, the occasion for the revelation. And then when you look at the chains of transmission, you find it very speculative, and uh, it's really not based on, on much. So let's going back now to the ayat, What verse 8 says, it, it transcends the issue of parents trying to force you to be a kafir. Remember, what Allah is telling you is, you have a jihad. Jihad is not, you know, the ISIS thing. It's not that you carry a sword and go fight. That's not even in the books yet. Your jihad is against yourself, against your own weaknesses, against your own doubts, against your own excuses. Then Allah takes you to the most difficult situation. And the most difficult situation is what you pick up because of your baggage. The baggage that you pick up from your family. I still don't see Binti. Oh, I see myself. I don't want to see myself. It's not a pretty sight. Okay, so the biggest challenge is your baggage. You have an obligation to honor and respect your parents. That's the, that's the paradigm of respecting and honoring your elders. Everyone that contributes to your education, to your learning, everyone that contributes to your livelihood as a human being, you owe them respect. And at the top of that pyramid are your parents. But there is a huge difference between respect and obedience. There is a huge difference between respect and obedience. The obedience that you owe is the obedience to Allah in the context of your jihad. If your own jihad towards Allah clashes with the jihad, jahadaka, notice here the, the remarkable use of expressions and words. Jahadaka. So your own jihad conflicts with the jihad they want to force upon you then you can't obey. Where the surah is going to take us is going to take us to the theme of transformation and hijra, as you'll see, is going to take us to the message of rebirth as a human being. You cannot 
use the excuse, well, I cannot be reborn because of my baggage from what I carry forward from my family. We forget, we forget that some of these Muslims were being prepared mentally and spiritually that not only are they going to get the command to migrate to Medina, but they will get the command to even some of them fight in battle against their own fathers, against their own uncles, against their own sons. That required a, a transformation in terms of living a life of commitment. Of course, the jurists later, the interpreters, because tradition steps in, try to water it down. Well, yeah, you know, the sons and fathers fought in Uhud, fought in Badr, fought in Uhud, yes, but, but you know, there's no difference between respect and obedience. It's completely, it goes against everything that we learn from the impact of Surat Al-Ankabut upon Muslims at the time. It is not telling you to, even if you, even if you confront them in battle, you don't hate them. The, even if you confront them in battle, you can't disrespect them. You might be forced to defend yourself in battle, but you can't hate and you can't disrespect so even when you tell your parents, I can't follow your path, it can't be yelling, it can't be screaming, it can't be cussing, it can't be cursing, it can't be disrespectful. This would include as long as your intention is towards Allah, we want you to go, we want you to study in a certain career. We want you to go to a certain college. If you're defending your own ego, then th that doesn't involve Allah. That, that's, that's something else. But if your cause is clear that you, you are looking towards liqa'illah, what you are looking towards is towards meeting Allah, then with all due respect, I cannot do what you're telling me. It was a transformation and a preliminary step to what's going to come yet in Surah Al-Ankabut. And then, notice this promise that so many people often ignore in verse 9. And those who believe and perform righteous deeds, we will surely cause them to enter among the righteous. والذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات لنتخلنهم في الصالحين 
What does that mean? لنتخلنهم في الصالحين It doesn't say لنتخلنهم مع الصالحين If it said مع الصالحين Then that would mean That if you believe And you do righteous deeds You will be Allah, you will join the righteous in the hereafter. You will join the righteous in the hereafter. But note here it says, If you persist in faith and righteous deeds, as we will see, this is affirmed in the rest of Surah Al Ankabut. Allah is, is saying, you strive and your effort will be met if this is your goal, is to be among the righteous. You will be made among the righteous. God will come to your aid. In the same way that if your goal is to be among the unrighteous, God leaves you to your devices and you become. Um, in passing, I want to tell you there is a very interesting debate about um, if we can go back to verse 3 for a second. وَلَقَدْ فَتَنَّ الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ لِيَعْلَمَنَّ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ صَدَقُوا لَعْلَمَنَّ الْكَاذِبِينَ so that we will test them so that Allah will know those who are truthful and Allah will know those who are untruthful. There is a very interesting debate in this context about whether misdeeds and evil deeds are created by Allah or not created by Allah you will find th that debate that point is is theologically debated but um, i finally got tafsir jashami uh, among other things precisely because of what he says about this that evil is not created by allah If I marked where he says this, we will be in luck. R remember, I I was in a rush to um, so I might have not marked it. Uh, I might, uh, if I find it, I just want to read it for the record. So, because it, what he says is very nice, but that, and and that's what I believe. Allah doesn't create evil deeds. Evil deeds are created by those who are responsible for them. Something that we could come back to, inshallah, in um, the broader halakas that, inshallah, they will materialize.
Okay. So that is a, a comforting and powerful promise that if you believe and persist in good deeds, as far as that world that is the real, what really matters, the, the heavens, the, the world of Allah and Allah's register, you will be among the Salihin and you will transform to be among the Salihin, among the righteous. Now, what's going on? Where's Jenna? <laughs> Where are you, Jenna? She's there. She's in trouble. She's there. Yeah, she's there. But she's, I pinned her. She didn't come back. Look, she's right there. There she is. Look, it's all her. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Poor Vinti. Give her a hard time, but no. make her suffer a little bit. They, they believe it or not, you know, some people say I'm a demanding teacher, but I can't believe people say that. How am I demanding? Do I ever demand anything? Okay, وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَقُولُ آمَنَّا بِاللَّهِ فَإِذَا أُوذِيَ فِي اللَّهِ جَعَلَ فِتْنَةَ النَّاسِ كَعَذَابِ اللَّهِ وَلَئِنْ جَاءَ نَصْرٌ مِّنْ رَبِّكَ لَيَقُولُنَّ إِنَّا كُنَّا مَعَكُمْ أَوَلَيْسَ اللَّهُ بِعَالَمْ بِمَا فِي الصُّدُورِ بِمَا فِي صُدُورِ الْعَالَمِينَ وَلِيَعْلَمَنَّ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلِيَعْلَمَنَّ الْمُنَافِقِينَ So this is now the ayat 10 and 11 goes back to what we mentioned about jihad. So there are those who say that we believe. But when things get difficult, when that lifestyle that pursuit starts costing, costing whatever way it costs, whether direct persecution or other costs, because often the path to Allah will cost. The cost could be you, you lose friendships. The cost could be you're not as close to your parents who don't care about religion. The cost could be financial, the cost could be time, the cost could be popularity, the cost could be, you know, and then in stark situations that you're arrested and tortured and so on. 
that the minute that starts, they lose sight of what all of this is about. And they imagine that this hardship, when, when, when Allah says, جَعَلَ فِتْنَةَ عَذَابِ اللَّهِ that this hardship functions as an excuse. Normally, the way that this is people interpret this or translate this is that that you that they think that the pain they go through on this earth is equal to or greater than hellfire. And that's what the point that the ayah is making. But but that's not just it. That could include that, but it's a more subtle point that when they endure hardship, they think that that hardship mitigates or excuses their wish, their wishy-washiness or their lack of commitment towards Allah. Well, you know, I'm going through a hard time. What am I going to do? Or, you know, oh, well, I mean, you know, basically you start. So that is exactly why then it says right after that, what? So they become wishy-washy, right? They become, eh, okay, you know, they stand back. If Muslims are victorious, if they prevail over the trials and tribulations, they say, well, see, we were always with you. We never left you. But if not... They simply walk away. It's like that bystander, right? Who pretends like they don't see what they're seeing or the obligations upon them as bystanders are not the obligations that are upon them. So, you know, if people jump to catch the thief, they will jump in and say, yeah, I caught the thief with you. But if no one catches the thief, they pretend they didn't see anything and put their hands in their pockets and sort of like start walking away. That's what this su'aya is describing. It is not as you commonly see it, and it's always taught in Sunday school, oh, you know, that Allah's torture is greater than whatever you suffer on this earth. Well, yes, obviously. But that's not it. It is the impact of testing upon the psychology and the iman of people. And that is then why Allah closes this ayah by saying, and Allah knows what's in your hearts. It's a rhetorical question. Don't you realize God knows what's in your hearts? You know, all the wishy-washiness, all the excuses, all the, the, you know, oh, well, I'm not sure. Well, people often, the thing that people, as we will also see, is that when people are tested, the, the most common strategy that people refer, resort to 
is to say I'm confused. They are not committing to being spineless cowards and they're not committing to being heroes. I'm confused. And they think they're tricking Allah. Allah knows whether they love their money more, whether they love their ego more, whether they love their uh, tradition more, whether they love their parents more, whether they, whatever it is that Allah knows. And Allah asks that rhetorical question, don't you realize I know what is inside of you? So you can say you're confused as much as you want, but I know. You don't hide you can't hide it from me. And then this extremely earth shattering closing of that section. And then it's as if Allah slaps us in the face and says, you know what? I will, وَلِيَعْلَمَنَّ here is so that Allah will distinguish, will differentiate. Allah will make clear the, those who are true believers from those who are hypocrites. The word that Allah holds back doesn't use, so the ground is laid out for everything that leads to the conclusion of hypocrisy. But, but Allah doesn't use the term yet. Until ayah 11, when Allah comes and says, well, you know, that's what we're talking about. Some of you are hypocrites. Some of you followers of Muhammad in Mecca. Now, notice, it could be, it could have been that Surah Al-Ankabut would come and say, I know that you're suffering and I am with you and I am God and I am telling you, there will be victory. You will conquer Mecca. Don't worry. Rest assured. But, but that's not, that, that, that would be cheerleading. That's not raising an ummah. Instead, Surah Al-Ankabut comes and says, yes, I know you're suffering, but you know what? This is jihad. And live a committed life and some of you are hypocrites and steer away from hypocrisy. It was harsh, as we will talk about. It was harsh. For at a time, and by the way, this is also after the story of Isra' wal Ma'raj. So already some Muslims, when the Prophet said, I traveled to Jerusalem, some Muslims said, we don't buy that. Okay, we're leaving. So it is coming and filtering out yet again, more filtering. It's not a numbers game. It's not how many people are following you, Muhammad. But what are the quality of the followers that are with you, Muhammad? Okay, let's pray us. We'll break for us. What is wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
See, I, I just don't pick on Jenna. I pick on other people too. <laughs> Romy is the one who told me that they published Tafsir Jashami. So I went insane until I was able to get it. <laughs> <laughs> All the way from Lebanon. <laughs> What's happening? Marwa? Oh. <laughs> Romney has manifested. <laughs> okay. So. Where's Binti? Oh my goodness. There we go. What happened to her camera? I think something is going weird. Off. Yeah, it goes something on. Something is off. weird about the camera. Oh, there she is. Yay! She was telling me something was weird about the camera. <laughs> okay, then. Let's go down. Verse 12 and 13. As. Twelve and thirteen. So the Quran alerts us to a dynamic. وَقَالَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اتَّبَعُوا سَبِيلَنَا وَنَحْمِلْ خَطَايَاكُمْ وَمَا هُمْ حَامِلِينَ مِنْ خَطَايَاهُمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ إِنَّهُمْ لَكَاذِبُونَ وَلِيَحْمِلُنَّ أَثْقَالَهُمْ وَأَثْقَالًا مَعَ أَثْقَالِهِمْ وَلِيُسْأَلُنَّ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ عَمَّا كَانُوا يَفْتَرُونَ what is the dynamic that the Qur'an is alerting us to? That there is a strategy for confusion. And the strategy is often to give you the impression that if you join the wrong party, by the fact that there is a by the fact that there is a party that is on the wrong path or the wrong side of things somehow that mitigates your responsibility this is what we would call social pressure that it is not just that there are people making the literal utterance, oh, we'll carry your sins. Although that's possible that you would have someone that would say, don't worry about it, we'll carry your sins. So, you know, if you're worried about God, don't worry, you know, just blame it on us. But it is alerting us to a social dynamic. And the social dynamic is that often those who are encouraging you to go astray are giving you the sense that well you're in, you have company so it can't be that bad and the very powerful message from Allah that you know what responsibility and accountability is individual and specific 
and social dynamics don't dilute your responsibility for going in the wrong way, wrong path. The fact that you had buddies that are doing the wrong thing and you just join them to be with them is not going to somehow remove responsibility from you. This is just not the body system, but it applies to any situation, whether it's family, it's parents, it's spouses, whatever the dynamic is, it, the, the, what the Quran is alerting us to, and I'm emphasizing this point because of how common it is, that it is often people go in gradations, in steps. First, there is a reason that they want to weasel out of their responsibility before God. Second stage, they plead confusion. It's not as bad as saying, I'm a bad person. I'm just a confused person. Third, is once you claim that you're confused, then you allow yourself to be led down the wrong path socially, parentally, familiarly, whatever it is. But effectively, you are you know, going with, with the trend. You are wishy-washying, if you will. You are just going through the path of least, the path of least resistance. And that first, know that responsibility is, is individual. But at the same time, know that if you lead someone astray, while you do not vitiate, you do not somehow mitigate their responsibility, but there are additional sins upon you for having led someone astray. And that is thinking about the responsibility of what you do is very important because if you set a bad example, you could be accruing sins that come from that bad example. In the same way that you said, if you set a good example, you accrue all the benefits that come from setting a good example. Take your life very seriously and act methodically and consciously and in full awareness because it is serious business. Pleading confusion, pleading social pressure is not going to work. Then from there, the Quran transitions to the strategy of telling us about past nations, the stories, the qasas of those who came before. And I'll tell you right now that it will tell us about the prophet Nuh, it will tell us about Moses, it will tell us about Samud, it will tell us about several people. And the constant theme in all of these 
as we will as we'll talk about, is that all of them had a decisive moment where they either would remain in place and suffer deterioration or they will do what Surah Al-Ankabut is all about or they will do Hijrah they will migrate to God with all that implies so first then this is Verse 14, That first Nuh and Nuh is in, among his people for 950 years and this, the message that despite this long period in which he is preaching and teaching to his people that ultimately the result was not success. And it's a very quick reference, but well, I'll come back to it. Then it moves on to Ibrahim. When Ibrahim tells his people, worship God, how could you worship idols? Idols are a falsehood, and and so on. This is now around verse seventeen. And note the interjection in verse eighteen. Often the result of going or persisting on the straight path, often the result of being righteous, is that people don't believe you and people don't follow you. In other words, that you are not celebrated for your truth. In fact, you are called a liar by people who, lie, who are ultimately liars in God's truth and ultimately people who lie to themselves. But that's the most common accusation is that you called a liar. This is verse 18. And I'm just thinking of how to present it. Okay. So then it takes us to Ibrahim and Ibrahim والسلام, is, is telling his people, you know, how, how could you worship idols? And the interjection that know that often people who are on the righteous fast are called liars and, and, and are ultimately not successful. Then it takes us back again, continues with Ibrahim, or continues with an interjection saying, you know, don't you reflect about the nature of creation that the people come and go, that people think that they are, they, they are achieved um, control and power, but yet ultimately they pass like those before them. 
with the result of for the, the reward for all of Ibrahim's effort is that he is thrown in a pit of fire by his people, but ultimately it is divine intervention that saves Ibrahim from the pit of fire, and so on and so forth. I'm going to come back to so on and so forth again, but I want to, to get to, to that, why that interjection about past people. That when it comes to Ibrahim's dynamic with his own people, note on verse 25, the way that you have socialized yourself, وَقَالَ إِنَّمَا اتَّخَسْتُمْ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ أَوْثَانًا مَوَدَّةً بَيْنَكُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا That the way you have socialized yourself is that you have taken idol worship مَوَدَّةً بَيْنَكُمْ as a way of fraternizing with one another. That in fact often when you construct a path away from God, you construct it so it's fun. It's, it's like, you know, when, when we do things that are haram, but we, we make it so that it, 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 it creates bonds of friendship and fraternity between us. But what is the result of this fraternity that you are creating between you in falsehood? Is that in the hereafter you will curse one another. And that's the, the remarkable image. So it's, it's saying, okay, yeah, I know. You, you know, when, when you jump on the bandwagon of the wrong, you imagine that you are, have friendships, that you have sisters, sisterhoods, you have brotherhoods, you have, you know, you know it's like when uh, 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 sororities and fraternities, you know, have their drinking parties. You know, bro and whatever, and, you know, they feel really close to each other. Ultimately, you know, quite often they end up cursing one another as soon as they get into trouble. But imagine that now in the hereafter. Now in the hereafter, they're in real trouble. And of course, they're going to share blame. I'll come back to, to, to these verses in a second. For all of... Ibrahim's troubles, the number of people that followed Ibrahim, although Ibrahim has had enormous impact upon history, but remarkably, the converts that he achieves by the time he is thrown in a pit of fire and that he is saved from the pit of fire is quite limited. And then it takes us to Luke. وَقَالَ إِنِّي مُهَاجِرٌ إِلَىٰ رَبِّي إِنَّهُ هُوَ الْعَزِيزُ الْحَكِيمُ Now here, this is verse 26. It's the first time in Surah Al-Ankabut that we get the theme of the Surah. Luqman works very hard among these people and ultimately is forced to do a hijrah. 
And the hijra is to abandon, to, to realize that all this life is going to be destroyed and to get on a ship and the ship will be the beginning of a new life, an entire abandonment of your, the old ways and a completely new page. Ibrahim loved his father and was very close to his people and tried passionately and lovingly for many years among his people until a critical chapter and a critical event. They finally throw him in a pit of fire. He is saved. But after that event, he and Lot, Lot was his former slave and adopted son. He and Lot, the prophet Lot, Luke, are going to engage in a hijrah that will involve abandoning their entire past life and starting a new chapter altogether. Surah Al-Ankabut is breaking it bit by bit to Muslims. Look at the, how, how incredible this is. It's breaking it bit to bit that you know what, guys? You're going to have to change your entire life. You're going to have to... Hijrah hasn't been decreed yet. But you're going to have to do Hijrah. And we'll see this. But that's easy to hear it now. But what does Hijra mean? Hijra means you're going to leave your careers, you're going to leave your business, you're going to leave your money because the Meccans would not allow them to take their money. Would not allow them to take their furniture. The Meccans said, any home you leave behind, we will confiscate. The Meccans didn't allow them to take their cattle. Did it allow them to take their furniture? Allah knows this, but Muslims don't know this. But they are being prepped by Allah. The sacrifice that's coming is huge. Not only that, as you will see in Surah Al-Ankabut, it tells them, I know, as we will see, I know that you tell yourself, okay, we're going to go to this new place. How are we going to make a living? And it says, trust in Allah. But we'll get to that. It is remarkable. The, 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 when you understand the way that the Quran addresses people, it has a long introduction that's readying them psychologically for the command. And the command is this monumental sacrifice that they're going to have to introduce. But it also tells them, you know, remember, there are others have made the sacrifice. And it presents the stories of the prophets culminating in this word, Inni muhajirun ila Rabbi. I am migrating to my Lord. Now, let's go back because of the interjections of the surah are fascinating. 
in verse 20, Ibrahim is talking to his people and saying, well, you know, reflect upon earth. And in the same way that you see babies born out of nothing, seemingly out of nothing, where were they? You know, in the spur bank, an egg bank of people. You know. And animals born out of nothing and plants born out of nothing. The same creator that makes life sprout in this way will make life sprout in the hereafter. You think it is so inconceivable. But if you just reflect upon the logic of your own life, you'll see that it is quite conceivable, quite real. And that ultimately, ultimately, if you weren't going to end up with your Lord, who has the power to grant reprieve and mercy to whomever Allah wants and to grant to punish whomever Allah wants, if you weren't going to be returning to your Lord, then your life would be pointless. Then there would be no point to living life. In fact, elsewhere in the Quran it says, if you truly believe that your life is so pointless, kill yourself. Yes, there is. <laughs> then you're exi- you're just you're just a, you pop like a like a a phenomena like a bubble and then disappear. Well, then what's the point? And then, وَمَا أَنْتُمْ بِمُعْجِزِينَ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَا فِي السَّمَاءِ وَمَا لَكُمْ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ مِنْ وَلِيٍّ وَلَا نَصِيرٍ. This is verse twenty-two. We know that you make great advancements and make great civilizational achievements, but know that whatever you do, you are not sovereign. You are not sovereign either on earth or in the, in the heavens. And ultimately, without your Lord, you're nothing. وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا This is 23. وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ وَلِقَائِهِ أُولَٰئِكَ يَأِسُوا مِنْ رَحْمَتِهِ وَأُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمْ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ This is fascinating. 23. Those, those who do not believe in meeting me In truth, they don't want to believe in my mercy. It is like saying, it's like Allah telling us, I know that what actually motivates you is fear. And you fear that when you are held to account, you will fail. So it is easier for you to say I'm confused and to follow the crowd and to say I don't believe. It is easier easier for you to suspend your reflections and your intellect and to say something can't come out of nothing, not under the law of physics. So 
ultimately it is because of that fear that you end up saying oh, we're not we just don't we just don't believe but in reality you have despaired in Allah's mercy and it's fascinating because then it says well and for those who despair in Allah's mercy is painful torture it is a major sin to despair in Allah's mercy among the best things I've read is in Tafsir Ibn Ajiba says that those who despair in Allah's mercy they have torment in this life because they live a life without belief in mercy and they have tormented the hereafter because the first thing that Allah uses to describe Allah's self is Rahman Rahim. I am the most compassionate and most merciful. So it is a major sin to tell Allah, no, you're not. For Ibn Ajiba and for so many, just that could transform your life. Just reflecting on that. You must believe. It is a sin to believe that Allah is not, that Allah is incapable of loving you and showering you with mercy and absolution. To all of this, of course, then we, the, the rest of the story of Rahim, that the, then his people cast him in, in fire. But note that if Allah, and this is often a Quranic style, it starts out with a narrative of a prophet, and then Allah's voice interjects. Why? Because the, when the prophet speaks, the prophet only speaks what Allah tells the prophet to speak, in this case, Ibrahim. So it does not make a difference whether the Prophet is saying, I am saying this because this is what I got from God, or God speaks to us directly as happens here. Which is, a, a, for, you know, that is why when we say Allahumma salli ala Muhammad, when we act, we are not, it is not about Muhammad. When it comes to revelation, Muhammad is simply an extension of the divine will. So we are, it, it is all about the divine will. And that is why the divine voice will often enter into the discourse, like slip in, speaking to us through the voice of the narratives of prophetic histories. So, when we get to this critical point in verse 26, when Lut says, I am inni muhajirun ila Rabbi, I am migrating to my Lord. It goes on to tell us that from Lut, from Ibrahim came Ishaq, Isaac, Jacob, 
and tells us a little bit more about this Hizra of Lut. Lut tells his people, you are committing sins no one else has committed before you. You sodomize men, you commit highway robbery, meaning your social gatherings are full of sin. In the reports, if you dig around in the reports enough, I think I wrote that actually. You find in the reports that people in the when the Lut people when they would have their social gathering, they would get drunk. They would start using obscene words. They would start slapping each other. They would gamble. They, they there was a green called Darb al which was it's a form of gambling. Um, um, and play music and have nude dancing or near nude dancing and then after being intoxicated and indulging in nude dancing they would all have an orgy and apparently the orgy would involve a lot of sodomy sort of sounds like our lives today okay and so Luke, that interjection that Luke said, prays to, 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 to Allah having withdrawn from all, all these sins, that Luke says, Allah, help me with these corrupt people. Allah mansurni ala al-mufsideen. So then the, the, the story that when the angels come to Luke and tell Luke that um, that these people will be destroyed and which we encountered in, in another surah that you know he is initially bothered by his guests because he knows that his people are going to come and try to rape his guests um Um, now it's uh, uh, verse 33. It preceded all of this with ultimately his people, ultimately his people are going to be destroyed and Lut and Ibrahim and the small group of followers leave that area and have to start a completely new life after the destruction of these people. And then it refers to people of Median and people of Ad and people of Thamud and of course the, 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 the epitome, the, the, the sort of example um, Par excellence, the, 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 the pristine example, if you will, of the corrupt, oppressive people, people of the Pharaoh, and, and the destruction of the people of the Pharaoh 
So goes through, as, as the Quran often does, a brief mention. It is not giving you a, a microscopic view of these stories. It's giving you a macroscopic view. It's like mentions all these people and you would have to go elsewhere to know the details of these stories. But ultimately, everyone leads with a complete transformation for the prophets and the followers. Because with Moses, he has to start in completely new life in the desert with his followers. And we know that with Moses, it was very difficult. The, 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 the attempting to start a new life with his Israelite followers, they're lost in the desert for 40 years. We know with the people of Shaib that similarly, after the destruction of the people, he has to start an entire, it's not the end of the life of the Prophet, but a new phase of the message of the Prophet. Okay. So, if you are reading all of this, and you are going to get the message that what you are going to be asked to do, you, Muhammad, and his followers, is do hijrah. And you're reading all of this, what would you think is going to happen to the people that you leave behind? If you take the example of the stories that the, that the Quran says, you think that they're going to be destroyed. But that's not what happens. And that's what's truly remarkable is that that's not what happens. It's not so easy for these Muslims. All these previous people didn't build a lasting civilization. They, they migrated, God intervened, wiped out the problem, and they had to start from beginning. But what Muslims have to do is actually much harder. Because God is not going to intervene and wipe out the problem for them. They're going to have to present sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And this is what Surah Al-Ankabut is getting them ready for. So, look then. Right after it mentions these prophets and the destruction of past nations, and it even tells you in, in very short form كُلًّا فَكُلًّا أَخَذْنَا بِذَنْبِهِ فَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ أَرْسَلْنَا عَلَيْهِ حَاصِبًا وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ أَخَذَتْهُ الصَّيْحَةُ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ خَسَفْنَا بِهِ الْأَرْضُ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ أَغْرَقْنَا وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيَظْلِمَهُمْ وَلَكِنْ كَانُوا أَنفُسَهُمْ يَظْلِمُونَ This is 40. So in very short form no details it says each of these people we seized for their sins. Some of them, we sent torrents of stones. Some of them, we uh, we sent a, the cry, a sayha. The cry means, a, 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 well, we debate what it means, but basically, it's a form of like sonic destruction. Something was heard from the skies that destroyed these people. And some of them, we caused the earth to engulf them. The earthquake and they sunk. And some of them we drowned. And some of them we 
sent stones upon them. In all of that, and it, it's like, it, it's as if the details don't matter. In all of them, there was divine intervention, and then the believers had to start a new life and, and migrate to their Lord. But in all of that, we did not wrong them. We did not wrong them. They wronged themselves. It is their lifestyle that caused their destruction. A principle that I swear by Allah, if Muslims internalize, they would rise as a major civilization. Allah doesn't wrong you. When you're backwards and, and, and behind and, 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 and undeveloped and suffering injustice and suffering poverty and suffering disease, Allah didn't wrong you. You wronged yourself. Allah doesn't commit injustice. And at that point, Allah interjects the parable of the spider. So at this point, Allah then says, you know what? Those who seek allies other than Allah are like when spiders try to find a home. And the worst homes are the homes of spiders. If you only knew. Then you pause and you reflect on this like the early Muslims reflected on this. Spider homes. Okay. Spiders are arrogant creatures. They have a very big ego. They create a net and lion weight and they trap their their prey and unlike other creatures, they don't consume preys when they're hungry. If they're hung not hungry, they store the creature for further consumption later. And often the poor creature will be wrapped up in a in spider webs and stored, will eat you later. The spider's home consists of just laying in wait. It doesn't really have shelter. Second, spiders, unlike many other creatures, once they procreate, the female will kill the male. So it's a solitary insect. No children, no homes. If the children stick around, the, the, the mother will kill the children as well. So they all have to dissipate. Go. 
It's an arrogant insect, a lone insect, no allies, a vicious insect, no mercy, but relative to the forces of other things in existence, its nest, although the fibers are very strong, if you took the fiber and created, you know, a, a, a human-sized fiber of a spider fiber, it would be extremely strong. But relative to the forces that exist on Earth, it's extremely weak. A little bit of wind blows it, and passing mammal blows it. There are a lot of insects that won't be trapped in it. So, how is it that why is the example of the spider important here? Is it really true that without God we are like spiders with their nests? Nets? Nest? Nets? With their nets? But even more, I think that what it's telling Muslims that are going to be asked to do hijrah is realize that the societies that you exist in right now are like the are like are like the societies of a spider and its nest or net nets spider nets meaning that it's all based on a mirage it's all based on something that you think is permanent and lasting and meaningful. But if you have friendships right now, in the hereafter, you're going to be cursing each other and blaming each other. Well, no, th this person made me do this. Well, this person told me it's okay. Well, this person didn't, you know, I, I was just following this person. If, if you have, you think you have financial security, but in reality, it's all up to Allah, as we'll see right in a second in Surah Al-Ankabut, because it comes to that. And if it if it has if Allah will, your entire social and economic structure and your in, the entire the entire palace of your life that you've constructed yourself would fold. Exactly like these previous people, they were destroyed with the cry, they were destroyed with wind, they were destroyed by earthquakes, they were destroyed by floods, they were destroyed. The fact that you are not being destroyed, that in itself is in Allah's hands, not yours. It's like the obvious point, like saying, when Allah says, the skies are held by your Lord, and if your Lord would have willed, the heavens would have come crashing down on earth. Creation itself is very fragile. It's sustained 
by a remarkably accurate mathematical equation. If it deviates a little bit, everything would come crashing down. The fact that we haven't had a comet or an asteroid come and, ex and exterminate us is in the hands of your Lord. But you are so arrogant that you don't want to see it. A little virus could come and exterminate you. You could swallow something. It could come down the wrong pa air pass passways and choke you to death. You could be sleeping in your bed and some crazy person walking in the street decides to come in and break into your home and kill you. All of it is fragile, but you refuse to see the fragility because you're scared and you despair in the mercy of your Lord. وَتِلْكَ الْأَمْثَالُ نَضْرِبُهَا لِلنَّاسِ وَمَا يَعْقِلُهَا إِلَّا الْعَالِمُونَ Oh my God. This these examples we give to people, but the only ones who truly understand it are those who truly reflect on it. وَمَا يَعْقِلُهَا إِلَّا الْعَالِمُونَ Only the truly knowledgeable reason through it and understand it. So, it is reason that if you reason correctly about cause and effect, you would come to this conclusion and you would surrender. I have to go a little bit faster. No. No. I said I have to go a little bit faster and I have like people around me. But no, no, no. <laughs> Telling us about Lut, is still not telling Muslims what it wants from them. So, what does it tell them next after the example of the spider and telling them reflect on it, think about it? It takes them, and, and I'll, I'll I'll, I'll tell you like the, the breakdown of the surah at the end. I, I usually do it at the beginning, but with this surah al I want to do it at the end. What then does it ask them to do for now? It asks them to read the Quran and Persevere in their prayers. 
واتلو ما اوحي اليك من الكتاب واقم الصلاه this is 45 ان الصلاه تنهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر ولذكر الله اكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون so persist in reading the quran reciting the quran and pray because prayer <laughs> because prayer prevents indecency and abomination okay we pause here for a second prayer prevents indecency in the salata millions of jumuahs around the muslim world the khatib gets up at jumuah and says exactly this inna salata tanha now it, it could be that they saying this and then like a minute later they go do salah and do fahsha wa munkar so what is the problem There is a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ. I don't think I... I, I don't think I wrote it down. Is it here? There is a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ that if your prayer does not prevent you from indecency and sin then the prayer is invalid often i get the question from people well i'm committing sins should i stop prayer should i stop praying and the answer is absolutely not because as long as you pray there is the possibility of Allah's mercy when you stop praying you have despaired in Allah's mercy and that is an unforgivable sin Allah might forgive you for not praying but Allah will not forgive you for despairing in Allah's mercy but know that prayer is designed to get you to clean your life and i'm not talking about you know people come and say well you know i have bad habits and no i'm talking prayer gets you to be a more truthful person a more honest person a kinder person a more merciful person if you heard my khutbah this past jumuah oh that was yesterday yesterday <laughs> prayer makes you care about women who are forced in marriage and raped i mean if a, if a woman basically surrenders to her husband because she thinks it's her duty but she hates it and can't wait till it's over that's right it's not criminal rape it's not legal rape 
but it's moral rape. Prayer gives you that. Because when you stand with Allah, and, and that is what, if prayer, does, it, it's not an issue of, oh, well, I pray, so then, you know, I do, I, I feel like I'm a great pious person because I do more tasbih or because I, you know, say astaghfirullah every time I see an arm, a naked arm or a naked leg or, you know, some hair or something like that. that that's, that's, you could say astaghfirullah about all the nudity in the world, but if you don't care about a woman suffering in her marriage, that's not taqwa. That's falsehood. So, we have to... I trust you get what I'm saying. Okay. So, prayer. Now, what is the most critical thing in prayer? That's earth-shattering. The remembrance of your Lord, remembrance of your Lord means your supplications, your prayers, is bigger than anything else. Not just more important than anything else, but you truly believe, if you truly believe that it is God that can make all the difference, then work towards the realization that your relationship with God, and that's what a dhikrullahi akbar means. It's not, you know, so many imams in khutbah say, what is dhikrullahi akbar? But what it means is that your relationship with Allah is more important than anything else. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that we say takbir, Allahu Akbar, Allah, every, that, that's, that's pointless, that's worthless. You could, you know, that's actually why I don't like saying takbir. And I don't, I don't like saying Allahu Akbar, because I feel it's hypocrisy. Where dhikrullahi akbar is when I know that my relationship with Allah is more important than anything else. It's not about takbirs. It's not about Allahu Akbar. It's not about cheerleading and posturing. Wala dhikrullahi akbar. Your relationship with Allah is more important than anything else. Which is exactly what Surah Al-Ankabut is teaching you from the very beginning. But Muslims somehow have missed the point about what is Allah Akbar. And that's, by the way, the dhikr for this Surah. There, there, there are two, two, two parts, but that's the first part. So when I was doing dhikr on the Surah years ago, I spent a long time, hours, just saying, Wala dhikrullahi akbar, wala dhikrullahi akbar, wala dhikrullahi akbar. Allah, allow me to understand why is wala dhikrullahi akbar placed alongside your narrative about an ankabut What is the relationship between the spider and the spider nest and wala dhikrullahi akbar and why the, I, I want to understand how it all fits. 
So this was about 15 years ago. واتلو ما اوحي اليك من الكتاب واقم الصلاه ان الصلاه تنهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر ولذكر الله اكبر الله الله يعلم ما تصنعون and remember there is no warfare yet ولا تجادلوا اهل الكتاب الا بالتي هي احسن الا الذين ظلموا منهم وقولوا امنا بالذي انزل الينا وانزل اليكم والهنا والهكم واحد ونحن له مسلمون وكذلك أنزلنا إليك الكتاب فالذين أتيناهم الكتاب يؤمنون به ومن هؤلاء من يؤمن به ومن يشهد بآياتنا إلا الكافرون. So at that point this is now verse Migrating to God means animosity towards the people of the book. Of course, in the, there are reports that say that this was revealed about Nasara, Najran, and, and so on, but none of it is, is, is reliable. But what is important is that as it is telling you, وَلَذِكْرُ Akbar. When you understand Akbar, that your relationship with God is the most important thing, don't think that that is an excuse to treat the people of the book badly or arrogantly. So when you speak to them, when you debate with them, بِالَّتِهِ أَحْسَنْ بِالَّتِهِ أَحْسَنْ means beautifully not just nicely beautifully when you speak to them speak to them beautifully and tell them you know we worship the same God people but we have serious disagreements precisely the way some Muslims today think that when they sit there Allahu Akbar and they think by saying Allahu Akbar they're demeaning Christians and Jews Surah Al-Ankabut exactly taught you that that's not what you're supposed to do. When you say Takbir or Allahu Akbar, you're not supposed to feel superior to anyone. You're not supposed to feel that you are better than anyone. It's exactly the opposite of what Surah Al-Ankabut taught us. These are not people at war with us. We're not talking about people who have stolen our who have stolen our lands. We're not talking about people who have killed our children. We're, we're talking about just Nasara, Christians and Jews, who are minding their business. And we meet them in the market, as we as would happen in Mecca. And they would say, What are you teaching? We're teaching that Muhammad is a weighted Messiah. Uh well, we don't agree. Okay, you talk to them beautifully. 
Some Muslims reach the absurd position, in my view, that oh, this was abrogated by the jihad by by the later revelations about warfare. This is empire speaking and politics speaking, not morality and ethics. These people have not stolen your land. These people have not killed your children. So, the morality towards them is one of beauty. Very clear. Very easy. Look how beautiful and clear-headed Allah's message is. Okay. And then, typical of Quranic strategy, and I'm going to summarize at the end, as I said, inshallah. They have various excuses as to why they won't accept, they know Muhammad is truthful. But they have various excuses as to why they won't accept Muhammad's message. Allah reminds them that, listen, this is not a man who, you know that this is not a literate man. You know that this is not a man who used to read books. So you think that he knows about the story of Moses or Abraham or from reading books or writing things. You know that. You know that this is not a poet. You know that this is not a man that, for, that spent time with scholars and sages. But the main excuse that the Meccans have for not wanting to accept what Muhammad is telling them is that He's a common person. He's a normal human being. He's a human being like every other human being. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for, for something because I'm misremembering where, where it occurs. It, it might be, uh, um, it might be, uh, but often the Quran tells the Meccans, uh, it, might, it, might, it might come to me where, where it is. Often the Quran tells the Meccans, you know, the issue is not that he's a, a, a normal human being. All the prophets were normal human beings. But if Allah would have sent angels to walk the streets 
if Allah would have manifested something from the heaven, the problem is inside of you. You would have still rationalized it away. If you don't want to believe, you're going to rationalize anything away. In fact, in a different surah, and this is what I can't remember, Allah tells them, if Allah sends you walking in the heavens in a path to your Lord, you will still rationalize it away and say, we just dreamt it. For those who don't want to believe, they will use their rational faculties because the illness is in the heart. It's not in the intellect. The intellect can rationalize anything away. So Allah tells them, and this is the most... Isn't it enough? They told you we want miracles. We want a table from the heavens. We want the sea to part. We... Allah answers them with something that's going to become an earmark of Islamic theology. Isn't it enough that we sent a book that talks to your reason and to your heart? Because in that is a mercy. You might say, well, why is that a mercy? Well, here it is. If Allah would have sent a miracle and made the miracle, your children would turn the miracle into a mythology. You might be believers because you saw the miracle. But the next, very next generation, the people who actually didn't witness it, they're going to say, ah, they imagined it. Ah, it was hallucinations. Ah, it was mythology. That's the nature of people. That's one. Two, if Allah would send a miracle, like parting the Red Sea, and you still didn't believe, then your fate would be like the people of Ibrahim and Lut and Thamud and Ad, utter destruction. There would be no space for negotiation. The reason there is space for negotiation is Allah taking, is taking you down the long-term path of, of persuasion and discourse. And in that is a mercy. Third, what becomes core to Islamic theology. The reason that Muhammad is the last prophet is that up to this point, Allah is sending miracles and relying on miracles. Human consciousness and human epistemological awareness has not matured to the level where they can preserve a book and rely on a text for their edification. So up to that point, human beings still rely on mythology and magic and sorcery and miracles. By the time Muhammad comes, Allah makes a determination, okay, you have matured enough to know, I, God, the maker, know 
that I can put a book among you and know that you have reached the level of maturity to preserve and protect that book and turn into a literate civilization rather than a civilization relying on exceptions and miracles and magic. That's why it ends. The prophecy moves to the book. The prophet becomes the book. It is not the human anymore. It is the text. So the Quran is the living prophet. When I read the Quran, I imagine a living prophet with me. Muhammad lives through the Quran, talks to me through the Quran. I live with the Prophet. But I live with the Prophet through the Quran. And here's the beautiful thing. I promise you, if you befriend the Quran, it will happen to you. Muhammad will be your companion. You will read a sunnah, a hadith, and it's as if you hear a whisper in your ear telling you, I said this, I didn't say this. But it is through the prophecy, the revelation of the Quran, that becomes the prophet. That's why it says, Isn't it enough that we sent you the book? Uh, note okay yeah, we'll, we'll get on. Uh, no, um, Uh, the the where I was telling you that um, the uh, uh, it says what the Bible says that he does not create evil and does not desire it. So how does he create evil and desire it? But the the commentary this is Joshua says that he's commenting on 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 this part and he says that Allah does not create the sin. And Allah never wills a sin. And Allah does not create kuf, and Allah does not will kuf. Note, among modern Muslims, thanks to the Adil Hadithi Ash'aris, the way Ash'arism became Adil Hadith version, you ask most Muslims, you say, does Allah create sin? You say, yes. Does Allah create kuf? Yes. If they knew what they're saying, Allah doesn't create sin. Allah doesn't create kufr. Allah doesn't want sin. Allah doesn't want kufr. Okay. Let's stop here to pray, Maghrib, and we'll continue, inshallah.